Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm honored to be joined by our guest today, Mallory Nizam. Mallory Roxana Nizam is a cross-sector culture maker who loves cities and believes that we have the tools to make them more just and joyful. She specializes in public art, creative placemaking, keeping and knowing, organizational development, strategic planning, facilitation, and the public domain. Through her cross-sector practice, Justice and Joy, she engages stakeholders across sectors to de-silo the way we run cities and build new models of creative, interdisciplinary collaboration. Mallory has helped build inaugural arts and culture teams in non-arts organizations at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council of Boston, Transportation for America and Policy Link, and is the co-founder of the Civic Artist in Residence Lab, Care Lab. Raised in St. Louis, Missouri, Mallory has served as the founding director of St. Louis Improv Anywhere and is the co-founder of the St. Louis Artivists. Through her art practice, she disarms and disrupts public space norms using play and participatory performance. She holds a Master of Design from Harvard's Graduate School of Design, and her research focuses on the racial equity impacts of artists' residents in local government. She's a 2020 Monument Lab Transnational Fellow, was a 2019-2020 Inaugural Practices for Change Fellow at Arizona State University's Herberger Institute of Design and the Arts, and is currently the curator of partnerships and programs for Forward a publication by Forecast Public Art. Mallory seeks to be in every room she's not supposed to be in. Welcome, Mallory. You're definitely supposed to be in this room, so I'm really excited to have you here with me, um, albeit virtually. It's been a number of years since we've seen each other, so welcome. Thanks for having me, Shaliza. It's so good to be with you virtually today. Thank you. And, you know, I've been following your work and learning more about you. You know, we studied together. We took a course together. Uh, I think it was arts activism or theater activism. And I think I was really drawn to you and the work you do because that's kind of the work I wanted to do. But you were doing it from sort of a architectural design standpoint, really a public space. And I think our worlds kind of collided in that way. And it was it was amazing, really. And I love the work that you continue to do. And I was watching your recent TED Talk, and you spoke about the power of play. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the power of play and what are the elements of play? Because I was so fascinated by your story about the pillow fights and whatnot. So I'd love to hear that from you. Sure. Um, Play. Such a powerful thing and something we're also familiar with from usually from our childhoods. Um, and then it's it's odd how it slowly recedes from our lives as we age, but it doesn't have to. And I've been really inspired to keep play in life throughout, you know, all the years as we age. Forever we should play. That's my opinion. A few of the elements of play that I'll draw out 
are one is uh, we live in such a, a logic driven society and part of what play allows us to do is to I think tap more into our embodied selves and our intuitive selves and uh, not not stay so squarely fixated on logic. So for example, play might ask us to be silly. It might ask us to do something we've never done. It might ask us to be a little bit uncomfortable. It might ask us to lean into something. And, you know, logically we may not want to, but when we're invited to play, it sort of makes it more, it makes the stakes a lot lower. It makes it like a fun invitation instead of something that we're going to overthink. Um, I also, I love this quality of play and it's kind of, it's been, it's been positioned as a definition too, which is that the point of play is that there is no point. So play, play doesn't, isn't a means to an end, you know, and, and that is, uh, to go right into to the political components of this work, like isn't that a lot of how the capitalist structures are organized, right? There's like always a means means to an end. There's always a, uh, you know, I do this and then I get this. But in play, it's really just about being present and experiencing something. So I think it's a really important practice to keep in our lives because it is almost an antidote to so much of the other forces around us that make us calculate, you know, I'm doing this in order to get this and play is just saying, you're just doing this just to do it just to spend time with people just to be present. For example, that's what uh, the pillow fight is that I brought to St. Louis for about six years. It's it really is just a pillow fight. Like there is no other intention or motivation. It's just to bring people together to be in their bodies and have a lot of fun with strangers. Um, So I think that's, so vital for us, especially, you know, living in, in a kind of society that we do. You know, the first thing that came to mind was, how do we play? What do we do? When do we meet? And then you said, there's no end goal. And then I started to imagine my friend's children and how they're always like, mm-hmm. auntie, like, let's just play. Like they'll, they'll bring rocks to me or costume pieces, or they'll want to play hide and go seek. And there's, there's no point to it. And I, I really resonate with this idea of, even though I'm a theater artist, I often get in my head about when am I supposed to play? When am I not supposed to play? How long do we play for? What is play? Um, am I going to make a fool of myself? And so I think I, I really hear what you're saying. It's just about doing and being present. And I think in our world, we're often not present. We're often thinking about last week, this week, what's going on next week. And, uh, I really want to try that. I, I think I want to put that as part of my daily life. So I really appreciate that. Well, I think it's also like I I was thinking about it recently because I was feeling that my play quota was lower than I like it to be uh, just in my daily life because, you know, it, it's changing all the time. And I was um, my partner and I were um, we were actually reading Shakespeare's Twelfth Night out loud. and. I was like, you know what? I really like feeling kind of my play energy is backed up. So I want us to just do like fully do the characters. Like, let's just lean into it. Let's get like, you know, really just playful, creative and rambunctious. And it was so cathartic for me. And so, I mean, it's like something that could just be, let's just read a text became something really full of play, full of joy. 
And then that brings out creativity and it allows us to connect differently. And it, it really brought the comedy of the play out and it just brought it to life in a totally different way. And I also think what you're sharing about your nieces and nephews or your, your, um, your friends, kids, it's children teach us so much about how to play well, like how to make the most of play. And you just reminded me that, um, so not only is play something where there is no point, but, but think about how creative the, the kids were that you're mentioning. They brought you a rock and there's a game. Suddenly the rocks come to life. They bring, you know, a shirt and, and it's a costume suddenly. So we can do that too as adults. Like we can breathe creative life into something that maybe wasn't creative yesterday, like IE Zoom meetings, <laughs> for example, you know, a, a, anything, even in your work life. Um, but the other thing that's nice about play, and you can think of this like games have games are part of play and they have a little bit of structure and they have a little bit of rules. So there's some bounds to it. But then within that, you can be really creative. And that's a really nice balance, too, because I think sometimes um, I think that there can be a fear around play, which is that, okay, there are no rules. I don't feel comfortable engaging if there aren't rules Um, or, you know, I I don't want to be in a lawless situation or, you know, what, whatever, like that you may not, it may not resonate with everyone to just have this totally free form environment. And some people it might, but if, if sometimes it's comforting to also think of play in a way where how do we be creative inside of certain bounds? And even, you know, artists that learn form and craft are often thinking, working in some sort of slight constraint. And that allows us to be really creative. So I think perhaps I, I, it goes without saying, but play allows us to to be creative. <laughs> and and sometimes it allows us to be creative inside some gentle boundaries, which is productive. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, well, what does kind of play look like? And you just gave some examples. And it made me think of examples like, you know, when I went rollerblading with my partner and then all of a sudden it was from him helping me to then me like pushing him and tagging him and just was so fun or, you know, playing bananagrams where it's just like, okay, we're going to get creative with the words. Now we're going to have a theme. And those types of things are part of play. We get so excited. Um, and, and maybe even we're playing games and we, we cheat and we bend the rules, we bend the boundaries and we have a laugh and we steal cards. And I think those are the types of things that do create joy and are very creative and, you know, we stimulate those creative juices, but we don't always think about that. So I really like that you mentioned that we can start with games that have some sort of boundaries and find creativity within that. Um, And as well as, you know, within art forms, because oftentimes we're trained to do certain things in the arts, whether it's dance or music or, or theater, and, and how do we kind of shift and move away from that? So I really, really love that. It really helps me put into perspective how I can play um, and play every day. So I like that. I'm also hearing in your examples of the rollerblading and the bananagrams, how play is opening up social connections. Like, you know, you can just rollerblade and that's great bonding, but what if you rollerblade and it's playful and, you know, you're laughing more or you're exploring a different part of town you've never been in because you do a scavenger hunt or you find all the things that are blue in your city or whatever whatever it is. Um, That social connection is so powerful with people you know and also with people you don't know which is a lot of what I do as a designer of experiences in the civic realm is creating opportunities for people to connect with strangers and um, you know from my more 
justice-oriented lens, it really is to get people to connect who might avoid each other or might, like, by city design, not cross physical paths and bringing people together to have really meaningful, playful experiences. Yeah, and to build on that, you know, you talk about uh, as a public artist that you activate public spaces and you create these environments to cultivate engagement. And also you make the mundane magical through public play and invisible performance. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? How is it crafted? How do you curate these spaces? Yeah, it's like a decade and a half of work. So where to begin? I'm like, go to the beginning, start at the beginning or start at the end is what I'm, what's kind of coming up for me. I think I'm really interested in, in forgotten about spaces, the spaces that are like really underutilized or are in geographies that are contentious. So um, I think in general, I'm like, I'm drawn to where Venn diagrams overlap. I'm drawn to to liminal spaces, I'm drawn to edges, frontiers, in a very in a physical and sense and in a social sense. So that might mean that when I'm designing um, an event, I am very intentional about where I host it. So, for example, with um, when I used to run the No Pants Natural Link Ride or when we used to do um, Pillow Fight Day gatherings, we were thoughtful about where we gathered people because we believe that space it, where you host something can be inviting or not inviting, depending on the history of that place, depending on the accessibility to that location, depending on the cultural value of that site. So um, where where I engage in public spaces is like very meaningful to me. And then I also think about, you know, who's going to be in a space naturally if I'm if I'm doing something that's not an event and I'm, you know, I'm working on like a Greenway project or I'm working on a piece of public art or a monument. Um, I think about who's going to be there and how they're using the space. I think about who's not there and why. I think about who has been there historically um, who might be there in the future, and all of these questions in, inform what I might do on a site. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the projects that this is this is definitely more driven by Damon Davis, is an artist that I collaborate with, but um, have been working with him on a Greenway project in St. Louis, Missouri, which is my hometown and where I'm speaking from right now. Uh, we thought a lot about when we were designing this. Greenway that's going to move through roughly 30 neighborhoods in St. Louis. We thought about the histories of these neighborhoods and how they've changed over time, as well as how the city's design has changed over time and how people can can or can't move around the city. How will a Greenway disrupt that? How will a Greenway um, heal that? And how will all of the art on it that was part of our role be in conversation with that. So one of the sites of the Greenway is going to go through um, a, a, a black neighborhood that was completely pummeled to build a highway. And this is common in many U.S. cities and maybe Canadian cities, maybe other cities around the world, definitely in the 50s. That was a pattern in the U.S. Um, and so our, our artworks on that site need to be in conversation with that history and 
not just, you know, for me, I'm not, I'm excited about work that doesn't just say, Hey, this happened here. And we want, you know, here's a plaque or something like that's great too. Like people who do that work, much love and respect. What I'm really excited about is how do we really engage people in the conversation? How do we bring it to life? How do we move the the past into the future as well? And so that's a lot of uh, what the work I do now is about, especially the work around urban design, urban planning, and working with local government. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to this question about the design piece and the design element, because, you know, you and I have talked about public spaces and places and even parks. You know, historically, they've been places for gathering and collaborating and for community. And just like you talked about in the 50s, a lot of parks, a lot of uh, places, a lot of even communities like in, in Canada, we had Africville, which was a black community in Nova Scotia that was uh, torn down and community was dispersed um, so that they could do developments on that land, which never ended up happening. Uh, that's happened in Vancouver, same thing, where there was a viaduct that was built and folks were uh, moved. And now that 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 viaduct is actually and that ramp is actually being being um, torn down. And so this is a, this is a historical thing. It is something that is part of history. And it happens to be that it's often black, indigenous and communities of color that are pushed out for the purpose of capitalistic uh, you know, endeavors or gentrification. And so I kind of wanted to learn a bit more about how sort of this space can be reclaimed and what is the significance of this space um, and public spaces? Well, first of all, public spaces are public, which means that they should be accessible to everyone. And they should be, and that means, um, physically accessible. So that means thinking about all abilities. They should be geographically accessible. It means I shouldn't have to have a car to get there. I should be able to walk there. It should be safe for me to get there. They should be socially available to all, which means I shouldn't feel policed in that space because of who I am. I shouldn't feel like I'm not welcome here, like I don't belong. I shouldn't feel intimidated or like it's not a place that, you know, I, I deserve to be in. I think those are the those are the kind of main ways that I think about public. But, you know, that I ideally for me as well, public spaces are spaces of the public coming together, too, because I don't know, is a public space really a public space? If it's a space only for people to remain separated, <laughs> then, you know, in their privacy, is that more of still a private experience? And sometimes public spaces are designed for that, like um, reflective sites uh, where, you know, something really challenging has happened and we want people to have quiet reflective space. Like um, I think I'm thinking of, the 9-11 memorial at the World Trade Center in New York, it's very much a sing, single, like go by yourself and, and have a thoughtful experience. And that makes sense for certain spaces. But for a lot of them, like parks, how can we design them to bring people together and facilitate socialization? I think about when I, when I moved to Spain when I was 22, right after I graduated from undergrad, I lived there for a year and then I moved back 
kind of accidentally, it was, I had an injury and I kind of had to come home to St. Louis. So I went from European, small, really dense city of, of a very different culture to the Midwest. And I believe I came right to my mom's. Yeah. So it was kind of suburban. Big culture shock because uh, I spent so much of my time in Spain in public spaces. I spent them in little squares, in circles. I would be out on you know, patios that spilled into plazas. I walked everywhere. There's like music on all these terraces overlooking the city. Um, there's lots of art gatherings and things like that. And then when I came back to the States, I, 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 I mean, I was shocked. It's like reverse culture shock by how privatized everything was. It's like I moved through space privately in a car. And even when I was on a bus, everyone was keeping to themselves. They weren't talking to each other, which is not how I experienced it in Spain. And when I got to eat, it was like, stay in your little bubble. And so, and a lot of that is design and policy. It's like we're designing spaces differently so that people are not fluidly interacting with each other and that some people don't invited feel invited and others do. And there's also a policy component. You know, how are you, are you making it easy for people to access things? Are you making it affordable for people to access things? Are you making it affordable for, for us to fund the, the construction of, you know, rail for people to get around cities or for parks to exist in neighborhoods that have historically not had a lot of resources for racist reasons. Mm -hmm. So those, and obviously all those things can change over time because we design them yeah, <laughs> and we can change them. We can undesign them. And I'm also thinking about how, you know, parks, we, we've talked about this are historically places to gather, you know, to play chess or have debates and how so many of these parks with greenery benches are turning into cement plazas that are not conducive to sitting. Um, I'm also thinking, you know, your story about Spain reminds me of when I was in Havana, Cuba, and there was a square and there was a bunch of men gathering and they seemed like there was a fight. I was like, what's going on? They were all talking really loud. They were talking about a baseball game. And this is the very thing you're talking about. People gather in plazas. And it's also reminding me of, yes, we're so individualistic here in North America, but also how has COVID even impacted that, that insular kind of being and, and not being in community and how that's really impacting people and uh, the way we need to be intentional. And like you said, mm -hmm. we've designed it that way. We can undesign it that way. Um, you know, I was reading an article and my cousin actually shared something with me. And I think you might've written something about this too, that, you know, black indigenous and people of color have sort of been conditioned now to not take up space in public parks. And so I forgot the hashtag now, I should have remembered it, but there was a kind of campaign where they were promoting people of color to go to parks and reclaim space because we'd sort of been pushed out either through gentrification, uh, either through, you know, racism, as you were talking about. And so I thought that was super, super interesting and really important. And I think I noticed it during COVID when I myself having to be confined was looking for parks and places to visit with my friends. And we'd, every time we saw a person of color, we'd be excited. I was like, why, why are we excited about this? And then I posted a picture and my cousin said, I'm so glad that you're experiencing nature because as people of color, we don't do that enough. And it was just so interesting. Wow. Yeah, to hear that, you know, and everything you're saying. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, everything you're saying just it resonates, may- you know? It hurts my heart a little bit, though, because it's like these are things that are so vital for our health. Mm-hmm. If we really think of health holistically and, and health, as COVID has reminded us, is so important. It's almost like part of our spiritual well-being and, and our social well-being, too, to feel like you belong in places and also to commune with nature. I mean. Black, Indigenous, and people of color have had really deep relationships with nature forever. (laughs) Like that is that is our our history and our and our lineage. Um, And as we become more urbanized, and especially as we've as we've had resources extracted and limited to our populations, I think that's often when there becomes a separation from the natural world because when you have less power, you don't, you don't have the same kind of access. And we design cities that way. We put poor people in concrete areas and, you know, in like in San Francisco, the Presidio is like a beautiful park, but it's also where very wealthy people in the city live. And it's also very privatized. And then in you know a lot of poorer neighborhoods those are in areas that are filled with factories and for many reasons not only is it cement but air quality is not good access to public transportation is not mm-hmm. good there's toxic waste like it is wow. about health i you know you're saying that and i'm thinking about like stanley park in vancouver right a very um high socioeconomic status and thinking about high park in Toronto, high socioeconomic status, Central Park, Boston right. Commons, you know, and these are like literally Boston Commons, it's, it's, they're community parks, but surrounding the park is all housing that is meant for high socioeconomic status individuals. And I think that is a big barrier. And I don't know if this is going to, you know, solve it, but I, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you talk about shared public spaces and architectural equity is there a way that we can shift the lens and shift the focus to benefit communities? I mean, we can't necessarily change the neighborhoods in that way, but how can we sort of do this through architectural equity so that we can benefit those communities who maybe don't live right next to those parks? A few ways. I think that Black, Indigenous, and people of color need to be making decisions. <laughs> you know, it's like it is about who and how, like who is planning and designing these spaces, who's in control um, and how can people like you and I, and you know, many people tuned into this podcast actually be at the, those tables. And, and I don't just mean having a design charrette that engages like quote your people of color quota for the project and then you move on. But I really mean putting black indigenous and people of color in the driving seat. And that means like, you, you know, you should have a seat at the table. You deserve to have a seat at the table. Go get your seat at the table. And if you are somebody who has power and is not sharing it, you need to figure out how to change that. So it is both about people in decision-making positions. And then it's also about kind of, I mean, for me, it's the long view is not, is also changing those hierarchies of how decisions are made like if I let's say if I take over the department 
My goal is to not keep the department in the same top-down structure, to take over the department and then make it more lateral so that, you know, the community is an equal player in decision-making. So it's also about the processes and just changing processes so that there isn't like this planner who's been in the department for 40 years and doesn't really know the community, like new, let's say new immigrants that are moving in or something like that, and isn't maybe in community with them or doesn't know what their needs are. How are they, how is their voice being heard? Is there a process to make sure that everyone is, is able to communicate their vision for the place that they live in? Because historically that has not been the case. And that is one of the many reasons that we get just bad designs. The other thing I want to say, and this is like, this is not said enough is that everyone deserves beauty and that for real is hard for people who have lived in, been taught to believe in a scarcity mindset, it is hard for us to believe. Like, I grew up poor. I I have the right to a beautiful park two blocks from my house. That's only for rich people. No, 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 that's not for me. We have to stop that narrative, that, that internal narrative. Because everyone deserves beauty. It's not it's not just for wealthy people. <laughs> Every single human. And that also means, and this is the really tricky part, that in the, there, there's a fine line to walk between, you know, like a let's say a toxic developer scheme wanting to put uh, wanting to put, to do new streetscaping in your neighborhood or bike lanes in your neighborhood or install public art. Because a lot of times those things we associate with gentrification and displacement and rapid economic um, change. And we don't want the, the latter. We don't want displacement. We don't want gentrification. But we do want beautiful things because we all deserve them. So the real the real um, work is to advocate for beauty in the places that we live in and define what it means for us. You know, what, what does, what does beautiful public art mean to that community? What does a beautiful green space mean to that community? It might, beautiful public art might mean um, for one community, it might mean murals depicting our history for another community. It might mean um, outdoor music constantly filling the streets or decriminalizing street performance and letting your neighbors, you know, take over the sidewalks because you have a bunch of creative people in the neighborhood. It might mean story circles for another community. Um, And then also what, you know, what green space might be different, mobility might be different. But I think we have to all believe that we have to believe more and shift to this abundance thinking because we've been taught, you know, by colonialism and white supremacy to believe that scarcity is our lot as poor people. And we just have to like just scrape to get the bare minimum and we're not deserving. Um, but then that, that, you know, such as the tool of the oppressor, it means that we will push away sometimes and we will organize around pushing away changes that would bring us beautiful things in our communities 
And sometimes those are done with ill intentions, but sometimes they're not. Um, and I think that the, the, maybe the most idealistic way to go about it is for the community to organize from the bottom up and to say, we want a beautiful park. We want a series of monuments in our neighborhood to honor our history. You know, what do you want and how can you start dreaming together of what you want because you deserve it? Yeah. So I'm hearing it's both and it's community driven and it's not, it's basically like allyship and accompliceship. It's not assuming what a community needs, right. And listening Hmm. to the community, but it's also from the ground up, the community stating what they want for that beauty. And I think that's really powerful. And you gave some really powerful examples there. And I am wondering, you know, as an artist, what role do you see artists playing in improving some of this government infrastructure and architecture and maybe what would that partnership look like or what are some of the opportunities or drawbacks of that so care lab c-a-i-r lab is a civic artist in residence lab and i co-founded this with two other people and we specialize in research and program development around embedding artists inside of local governments. So this is different from hiring an artist to do a single project, like paint a wall. This means bringing an artist into your department of transportation for two years, bringing an artist into city hall for six years, <laughs> bringing an artist into the department of sanitation for 30 plus years. Actually, I think we're at yeah, 30 plus years. Um, that's in New York. And really making them a partner in creative problem solving. And that can go all across the board. And it can span, of course, into infrastructure projects like working on bridges, building parks. And it can also branch even into more process oriented things like how do we um, contract with independent vendors that's procurement that's often a challenge and it creates like big big equity issues for cities um, when they don't contract with uh, black indigenous and communities of color and consultants uh, from those identity backgrounds or even creative practitioners the other thing that artists can bring to the table is so many artists are such skilled facilitators community Um, engaged practitioners and artists have really I would say many of them superior skills in getting people to communicate their hopes and dreams and concerns about something so tapping into that emotional component of the city tapping into the imaginative component about what could be that doesn't already exist. They're so skilled at at pulling that out of people and making people feel excited to share that, making people feel safe to share that. And this is often um, something that governments really need to do and need to know. But I'm sorry, governments, you don't have great tools to do that. (laughs) Like, I don't want to go to a lot of the, like, town hall meetings, you know, at 5 p.m. in some weird basement that's smelly. Or I can't go because I'm working two jobs and you're not really making it compelling for me. Or I, I know that if I go, 
I don't feel like you're going to listen to me. Um, or you're just giving me a survey and I don't get to really share how I feel. So one example is the artist Amanda Lovely, who is one of the co-founders of Care Lab. She's based in St. Paul and Minneapolis, Minnesota. She was an artist in residence with the city of St. Paul for, I think, about seven, six or seven years embedded in City Hall. She had a desk. She was engaged with the full staff. Um, and she created something called pop-up meeting because she found that that um, city meetings were not really engaging. Um, we're not engaging the full demographic of the city and were not that interesting for a lot of people. So she brought the meetings to the people. So she, again, similar to my question, she thought about the geographies where people were going. So she thought about, she thought about where meetings are being held so instead of saying, Hey, everyone come to city hall. Maybe it's two hours on a bus for you. I don't care. She said, I'm going to come to the library near where you are. I'm going to go to the street corner. I'm going to sit in front of the bodega and engage people in their neighborhoods. She also had creative ways for people to engage so they could do little art projects that would share their hopes and dreams and collected a lot of data along the way, which, you know, governments need to actually know, you know, how are people feeling? What can we change? And gave that information back to the city, and it was so much more helpful. And they're still using pop up meeting till this day. I love that. It's really coming to the community, right? Because I agree with you. I don't think I've ever gone to these city hall meetings, and maybe because it's on Zoom, I've listened in or or watched in. But yeah, I don't feel like I have a space or a place there. I totally agree with you. Um, so I, I love this idea of pop up meetings, and it sounds like. The power of play could be useful for all adults, especially those who are decision makers, so that they have a bit more creativity um, and can partner with artists as well. Now, um, on your website and in your work, you pose many questions, and I'll pose these for our audience who are listening, and then I'll pose one for you. So you ask, how might imagination and cultural knowledge guide urban design, planning, and policy? How can artists and cultural producers help us reimagine a better public realm and civic systems that work for all. And how do we allow joy and creativity to shine through in everyday living? And this is really centered around the work you do. So I know you've kind of given us some ideas, but tell me, how do you think we can reimagine public places and spaces, like the everyday person? How can we reimagine? public spaces and places. Mm, the everyday person. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is there are a lot of ways that you can just do a tiny little test project in the place that you live. It does. You don't have to have like a bunch of funding resources to do a very involved project to change everything about your city. What if you just did one little thing like created a morning uh, a makeshift coffee shop in your front yard you put a bench and you sit out there with a hot pot of coffee and invite neighbors as they pass by to sit and chat with you and you make them a cup of coffee 
Maybe this is your way of exploring, do we need a coffee shop in our neighborhood? Maybe this is your way of exploring who lives in my neighborhood? How do I get to know them? How do I cross some of these social barricades that are in my neighborhood? Um, little micro projects with chalk too. I do projects with chalk. If um, there are, you know, uh, certain historic moments that you want to commemorate in your neighborhood and you don't have the ability to build a huge monument, how can you use low cost materials to celebrate history? Um, or even working with um, something like murals, you can use temporary structures to paint on and display to celebrate different historic moments. Um, I think just testing something that you're interested in doing that with materials that you have and getting people together in your community to do it. Um, so it starts with kind of thinking like, what is the, what is the thing that I see that I want to make better? And then what's something that I can try? And then oftentimes that is such an important seed that you plant that can grow into something else. So if you show, if you demonstrate something, um, I think it's a lot easier to build support around it, whether that is from other people who you just need to back it, or whether that is to um, start to generate interest around a policy change, or if that is even to raise funding for something. Yeah, you're making me think that maybe I should just get some folks together at Trinity Bellwoods Park uh, and have a big pillow fight. You know, uh, that park, <laughs> a lot of the parks in Toronto, unfortunately, were recently uh, by the government, by the city. Uh, the houses community was recently evicted from those public parks, and it was uh, very disheartening, very disheartening because it was violent, a violent eviction with uh, police officers and city workers. Um, and, and you know, it's it's hard to find uh, people who are houseless to have conversations with. I used to love to have conversations and they're not in the parks anymore. And so I would love to sort of reclaim that space and uh, take a page out of your playbook and have like a big old party or a pillow fight or a drumming session. I feel like that's so simple. That's something that I could do. Or, you know, maybe it's a big Bananagrams party uh, and we're, pl we're playing Bananagrams or playing tag in the park. And I think those are some small ways that we can reimagine as well. And we don't always have to have, like you said, a budget or a formal, formal, um, formal thing that's happening. I know one of my friends uh, has a, has a thing called Hello Reset and it's a play with, um, you know, the headphones where you're having kind of a silent disco and you're just out in a public space and you're just dancing. And it was so freeing to be dancing to your own channel and then looking at other people and having fun. And, and so I love all these ideas that you've given us, especially that coffee idea. I mean, that is great. And I've seen that at a lot of parks where houses communities live as well. And why not just set up shop? I mean, people are afraid of COVID, but we need to be unafraid, unafraid of community and, and re rebuild that. You can six, sit six feet apart Yes, <laughs> and have a coffee from a sterilized mug. Like you can make it safe. And that is important, obviously, in this day and age to, to make it safe. Um, but those are the bounds, those little gentle boundaries that we set that we can still play within. Yeah, we the just challenge is six feet. Yeah, we have to be creative. Maybe that's the maybe that's what your coffee shop is called. The challenge of six feet. Maybe we're going to start that. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it all. You know, just having conversations with people. We don't do it enough, you know. Um, 
And I was also wondering, you know, we met at Harvard and you were in design school. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of the design work you did there. What projects were you inspired by um, at your time there? And what did you kind of do there? Because it's, you know, it's this huge colonial institution and the work you do is really about the public. So how did you kind of connect those two worlds and uh, what, what was inspiring to you or what work did you do when you were there? Okay, three things. My degree was called Art Design in the Public Domain. So my degree was inherently about, you know, the public domain. So that was a good invitation. I also was able to take classes in a ton of different schools and even institutions. So I cross-registered um, at the School of Government and Policy, at the Education School, uh, at MIT's Media Lab. So that my work is cross-sector in nature, and I'm not really, like, it's probably obvious by now, but I don't really like, like, boxes. <laughs> so the, a program that allowed me to meet students and professors that were working all the way from public health to urban planning to film really inspired me and was right in line with the kind of world that I want to be in and the kind of learning I wanted to be doing. And then lastly, I, when I was at Harvard, I did a fellowship with the, with uh, MAPC, which is the Metropolitan Area Planning Council of Boston. So it's urban planning, but it's regional. So it's all around the Boston area. And that was a great place for me to Venn diagram again, urban planning and arts and culture. And I lived right in the middle there and I helped their arts and culture team develop their program, do projects in communities. I got to know different areas of Boston by actually being on the ground and working on projects with them. Uh, then I also worked with the artist in residence who was there for 18 months, who was embedded in the planning council. And that was a, a lot of amazing learning that led to my thesis, which led to Care Lab and ongoing research that I'm doing around artists embedded in government. So I think that my time at Harvard has contributed to my thinking about cross-sector collaboration, but even more than Harvard, my time in Boston has contributed to my me doubling down on my interest in the possibilities for government to embed artists, not just as in one-off projects, but as equal creative partners, creative problem solver, solvers, and ima imagineers. That's a new word. <laughs> but I love it. You know, really experts in imagination. And why can't governments be imaginative? Governments are like, in many ways, charting our future. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they imaginative? They have to be imaginative, especially nowadays. And if they aren't, you know, we're, we have to demand it. Mm -hmm. it, it can't not be. It must be, they must be creative. They must be imaginative and they must stop being so top down. Mm -hmm. So that's also where we come in. We have to believe that we can change it and we have to do little things to change it and big things, mm -hmm. but we can start small. I love this analogy of the Venn diagram because, you know, when you say we're being put in boxes and silos, I totally understand that. And this Venn diagram visual that you've given me sort of allows me that kind of freedom and play to say, I'm not one thing. I'm not the other. You know, I'm a theater artist. I'm an educator. I'm a social justice advocate. Uh, you know, I'm an EDI consultant. And they're all kind of together. 
uh, in that center. And I, I'm really picturing these two circles converging. And I, I, I love that you say that because I think that our society wants us to be in those boxes, either through educational pathways or through degrees or through socialization. And I think this idea of being imaginative, about being playful is really taking our skills, our loves, our passions, what we do, and really converging them into everything and having them overlap as we really are, right? There's, we, we're not uh, singular or one-dimensional people. I would love to invite our listeners to think about where their Venn diagrams overlap in the things that they love and are and are trained in and spend their time in, you know, so, you know, maybe you're a parent and you're an artist. Maybe you're a gardener and you're a software developer. You know, you don't have to just be one thing. And what what happens if you let those things kind of live together a little bit and grow at that overlap of the Venn diagram? My company is called Justice and Joy, and I really work at the center of that Venn diagram too. Um, you know, I, I believe that my justice work is joyful and my joy work is always about advancing justice. Mm-hmm. And I don't, not interested in the one without the other. I think they are, they're, they're deeply interconnected. And, and so for me that the middle of that Venn diagram is, is where a lot of my work comes from. I love that Mallory. I really do. And, you know, there was this one quote that sticks with me. I believe it was from your TED Talk. And I and love this. And you said, I think of play as an invitation to embrace the unknown with a sense of joy. Unknown ideas, places, and people. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this means to you? Because it's very powerful. Hmm. Forgot I said that. <laughs> It is a good quote. I think that this elicits, I think we have a tendency, uh, as we stated at the beginning of this conversation, to, you know, have to, have to know. We need to know. We have a desire to, and, and knowing is a part of control. So play is an invitation into the unknown. You know, it's, the point is that there is no point. There's not necessarily a means to a particular end. We're ask, I'm asking you to be present. I'm asking you to disarm. And I'm also hoping that you know it's a safe space for you to be your full self. And that's so freeing. It can be deeply liberating at a spiritual, emotional level. And I do actually think when we are deeply in a state of play that we are in like a, a very deep liberated emotional space. And that is where the justice overlap is lives as well to, to, to actually feel like your psychological liberation, even from yourself and, and your psychological liberation from the rules of the space around you, historic, political, social, and, and you can't feel that if you're somebody who faces so many layers of discrimination. Like you may be thinking, even as I'm saying this, like I can't feel that kind of create freedom in a, in a park that somebody else can. Like I just don't, I can't because of who I am, how the world sees me. 
So I think play gives us these moments to, I want to create these moments where we can feel that we can be that. And it is a safe space to do that. And it's almost prototyping a future in which we are actually creating a world where you can be free and you can be joyful and you can be playful and you don't always have to know and we don't always have to control because to not control is to trust and it is to feel safe. And those two things go hand in hand. Yeah. That really resonates with me on so many levels. And I think that uh, that is exactly, I think our society overall generally is we're really trying to control because maybe we're afraid of trusting and we're afraid of letting go. And I think that's just why play is so important. And, you know, bringing back to the first thing I asked you about the power of play, I think that is really why it's important for us to have that imagination and to let go and to open that creative side and to just be present. So we've talked about so many great things today. The listeners have so much to gain and a lot of homework too, to think about your own Venn diagram. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with folks? And maybe you could share with folks how they can get in touch with you. We'll put some stuff in the show notes, but I wanted to put the floor back to you, Mallory. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Um, And it's been really nice to reflect back on the work that I'm doing. I would love to let your listeners know that um, I offer coaching as well. And I, um, you know, if, if play and joy is something that you're incorporating into your own work or something that you you'd like to do as a leader or like to do as just a person in the world and you don't know how, um, that might be something that we can talk about from a coaching perspective. And I also um, want to share with your listeners that a lot of the work that Care Lab has been doing, so that's the civic artists in residence in government, embedding artists in government, um, we have a whole website built out that I know the team um, at Curated Leadership can can connect you all to, but we are setting up programs for local governments. We're doing trainings. Um, so if if you work in the public realm or in government and you're really excited about some of the ways artists can partner to help imagine and reimagine cities and city design, Um, Care Lab is a great resource and we have a lot of research and writing that we've published too. Um, And then folks can get in touch with me through Twitter and Instagram and we'll drop the links I'm sure through through the team to connect there. Um, I've got a lot of fun things on my website, videos and and stories about some of the work that I've been doing. And, and that's a great place to spend some time as well. The last thing that I was thinking about is I'm like, there's a metaphor, there's a metaphor about the work that I do that um, I can't quite put my finger on. And I think I did at the end of this talk uh, is that for me, for me, so I exercise to I, I, the feeling of endorphins, that kind of 
release of my body is so important for me to just kind of balance myself, reset, and, um, you know, really feel, feel well, it's necessary for me. And I think play plays this, it's a similar function where it's, it's almost helps me with an emotional endorphin. <laughs> it's like it, it, it lights everything up at the same time. It lets me like release this, this energy that I've kind of had bound up and it makes me feel alive uh, in the way that going on a long bike ride can. So if you know that feeling of you know, endorphins and going on a long bike ride or having a really great kickboxing class or, you know, a great run or yoga practice, whatever it is, um, that feeling is also available to us at an emotional level um, if we play more. And I really want to think of it as part of our well-being. So um, just like we exercise every week, we should be making space in our lives to play every week. So that's a challenge uh, that I that I want to like lovingly present to everyone is to think about how you can incorporate more play into your week. And, you know, play is something you don't over plan. So it might just be something like getting my friends together to do something, go, meet somewhere new you know, the next time. So we're in an unknown location and, you know, we're, we're going to be more curious and playful or I love doing scavenger hunts with my friends too, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but how can you, you know, how can you invite more play into your life, even on, on team meetings and things, you know, how can you create interesting icebreakers to, to start your work day? Um, to just, yeah, tense that part of your well-being. Thank you so much, Mallory. Thank you for reminding us to play in simple and big and small ways. And again, thank you so much for joining us today on Curated Conversations. It's so nice to sit down with you, um, hope to connect with you again now that uh, the borders are reopening. And for our listeners, please check out the show notes to learn more about Mallory's work. And if you love this episode, please rate and comment in the notes and on the episode and let us know what you'd like to hear more about and follow the podcast and visit us on Instagram at Created Leadership. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and listen to the past episodes at www.curated-leadership.com or wherever you find your podcasts. So thank you everyone. Until next time.